Philippians chapter number one, and uh, let's go ahead and read the first eight verses together. We're going to bite off verses three, four, and five this morning, but we'll read the first eight as we have for the past couple weeks to get just kind of a feel and heart for uh, this text and the love that Paul has for this church at Philippi. And verse number one of Philippians one says this, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is me or as it's fitting or proper for me to thank this of you all because I have you in my heart Inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels or in the affections of Jesus Christ. We're going to take these, these verses 3, 4, and 5 this morning, and I want to talk to you about what I would call a long obedience in the same direction. Paul tells this church, church, I am thankful in verse number five for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, from beginning to end, you have partnered with me in gospel ministry. You have had a long obedience in the same direction and I'm grateful for that. And this morning I want us to understand a bit more of what Paul is saying and expressing to this church. So Philippians chapter number one, we've said just about every week now that this letter from the apostle Paul to the church at Philippi is especially warm and friendly and heartfelt. It's about as heartfelt a letter as you can find in the New Testament. And Paul is not seeking to correct this church. He's not seeking to rebuke them for some wrong that they've done. He's not seeking to lay out some new theological ground for them to understand. He's, he's just really expressing his gratitude and his praise and, and how thankful he is for this church. And you get a look, when you look at the book of Philippians, you get a look at what Christian maturity is, is supposed to look like. And you get a view of what a real mature church was and how they functioned and what was important to them. And I would contend that verse number five, which is where we've, we've just got the title for this entire series, that we want to be together for the gospel. I would contend that verse number five really is a capstone as to why Paul was so grateful for this church and loved them so dearly, and as to why this is not a letter of correction and rebuke. And Paul says that they have had fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And he says that you have had a long obedience in the same direction. And this morning, I want us to, to hone in on and really consider verse number five. But before we get there, I do want us to consider verses three and four and see what thoughts the Lord would have for us. So we're going we're gonna to dwell primarily on five, but there's, there's things to glean from three and four. So I want you first just to see what, what I would say is, is this. Thinking requires thinking. T-H-A-N-K, thinking, requires T-H-I-N-K, thinking. Paul says in verse number three, a simple verse, a simple statement, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Paul says, every time I remember you, I thank God for you. Now that, to me, is quite the compliment. There are a lot of people that I would be generally thankful for, that I would say that the majority of my thoughts toward them would lead me to expressions of gratitude and thankfulness. 
but there would be very, very few people or groups of people that I would say every single time I think about you, it just leads me to thank God for you. Maybe it's because I'm cynical or critical or I just don't appreciate people enough or I dwell on negatives. I'm not sure. But there are very few people that I would say that all the time, whenever I think of you, it just automatically leads me to thank God for you. And this is what Paul is saying. When I remember you, I thank God for you. And Paul is saying that what we really know to be true, that thinking and thanking go hand in hand. Those two are supposed to mesh together. And honestly, Part of the reason that maybe you in your own Christian life would go through a half a day or a day or a couple days or even a week without stopping to truly express your gratitude to the Lord and stopping to say, Lord, I thank you for what you've done in my life is because honestly, sometimes we just don't stop and think about it. That's part of the reason that I love church, that we come in these walls and we start to, to shove out to the outside all of the things that distract us and pull at us and are nagging at us, and you get in here and the choir gets up and sings that God has been good in my life, and it causes you just to stop and hit the pause button and think about how, God, how good God has been in your life and to say, you know what, Lord, I do thank you for that because you're thinking about it. And Paul understands that these two are meant to, they're meant to mesh together. And it could be that this week you thought about your finances and you thought about the check engine light that's on in your car and you thought about the problems with the kids and you thought about the vacation that you're planning this summer and you thought about all kinds of things, but you just never stopped to say, Lord, you have been so good to me. Let me think about all that you've given me. Let me think about the life that I have. Let me think about salvation. Let me think about that I have the Word of God in, in my lap or a copy on my phone or my iPad. Let me think about the family that I have, that I have a roof over my head, that I have, I have clothes on my back, I have food in my stomach, I'm American, I, I have health, on and on and on we could go. There's a ton to be thankful for, but it does necessitate that we, that we carve out some time on, a, on at least a daily basis to stop and to say, Lord, let me think about this so that I can be thankful. It would do some of us well to, as you go through your week this week, to turn off sports radio as you drive to work, to, to close out of the Pandora station, to turn the TV off, to set the phone down, and just to take some time to stop and to think about how good God has been to you. So, Pastor, you don't, you don't know what's going on in my life. There's, there's, there's this negative thing that's just it's weighing down on me, and, and it's just uh, I can't get off my mind. You don't know what happened this week, and you don't know what, what they've done to me, that, that this is happening and that's happening. And so many times we dwell on the negatives, and we hone in on this, this one facet of our life that is great. There's 20 other things that a ton of the world would be so grateful to have in their life that we have this, 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 but, there, but there's one item that's not going well and we, we marinate on that and in turn we're never thankful for anything. I love what Helen Keller said and we'd be smart to learn a lesson from her. Helen Keller, the, the blind and deaf woman said, so much has been given to me that I have no time to think about that which I do not have. If she could say that, that so much has been given to me, I have no time to think about that which I do not have, I dare say that we could do the same in our own lives. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you are of all men or all women most blessed, and you definitely have something to be thankful for, to praise him for, to celebrate that, that you know him and he knows you. 
And Paul says simply to this church, every time I think about you, my heart raises to God in praise, and I'm thankful for you. You say, why was Paul so, so grateful for them? Why was he so thankful for them? I'm glad you asked. It's a valid question. He was grateful for a lot of reasons, but probably most specifically, according to this book, he's grateful, and this is where verse 3 is, is headed towards verse 5, he's grateful for their fellowship in the gospel. He's grateful that these people have partnered together with him in gospel ministry. Uh, one of the key ways that this book exemplifies is that, that they've partnered together with their finances. I want you to turn to Philippians 4, towards the end of the book. Paul is ending this, this letter and he gives us sort of the occasion for this letter or the impetus as to why he penned these words to begin with. And he says in verse number 14 of Philippians 4, if you don't have a Bible that's in your notes that were in the bulletin, he says in verse number 14, Notwithstanding, ye have done well that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, this is where the church at Philippi is in Macedonia, when I departed, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. Paul says, no one in your region wanted to invest in me financially except for you. You, you were willing to do that. Verse number 16, for even in Thessalonica, ye sent once and again unto my necessity. He says, your, your giving was not a one-time thing. It just was a one-off. This was a consistent thing that you did over and over again. Verse 17, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. So this isn't really about the money for me. This isn't about me wanting a blessing. This is about me wanting you to have fruit to your account, to have treasure in heaven, to understand that, that the Lord rewards you for this. Verse 18, but I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus, who was part of the church at Philippi, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, right now I'm in Rome, I'm in prison, and I got the care package that you sent to me. You over and over and over again have blessed me financially, and I got once again that you sent me, I don't know what all was in the care package, you sent me some money, some food, some clothing, some books, some oils, some incense, some whatever it was, you sent that to me, and I got that, and I'm grateful for that. And what Paul is saying is, look, I'm grateful and I'm thankful. When I think about you, my heart raises in praise because you're willing to support the missionary. Because you're willing to invest financially in the cause of Jesus Christ to see the gospel go further faster and to see it reach people. And Paul says, I'm thankful for that. When, when you come to mind, I immediately just say, Lord, I praise you for the Philippians and what they've done. Can I give you just a, a piece of pastoral encouragement this morning? I would encourage you this week to take some time to think about those that have been spiritual mentors in your life. Those that have really helped you grow in your understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe someone led you to the Lord. Maybe someone took you under their wing and they just helped you along in the Christian walk. Maybe it was a fifth grade Sunday school teacher that just impacted you deeply. Whoever it is, I encourage you this week. Do what Paul is doing here. Stop. Think about them. Thank God for them. And even express that gratitude to them. Write them a note. Send them a text. Send them an email. Call them. Do something this week. 
It would go a long way in your life if you just thought about the humans who have, who have been instrumental in your growth, in your Christian walk, to do that. I honestly, as, as a pastor, take a lesson from Paul here. Paul is expressing to this church that has partnered with him in gospel ministry his gratitude. And I can say, as Paul said to that church, to you, church, thank you for being together for the gospel. Thank you for understanding what it means to be together in gospel ministry, to fellowship in the gospel. I honestly, from the, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for understanding and for having a heart for missions. So many of you in this room would contribute financially to our missions program on a consistent basis. And this year, we will give away more than a quarter million dollars to people and organizations and needs in our community and all around the world. We'll do a quarter of a million dollars because you've got that heartbeat and vision. And I thank you for that. I thank you that you have a heartbeat to want to get the lost to the message and the message to the lost, that you have a heartbeat to want to share the good news of Jesus. I even thank you in advance that you'll pick up some postcards and you'll put some names on them and you'll, and you'll send them out as Easter invitations here over the next week. I'm, I'm grateful to you. I can say as a pastor, I'm grateful that I get to be part of Team Harvest and that we get to go together in gospel ministry. And Paul says to this church, Every remembrance I have of you, every time I think about you, I am thankful for you. Then he says in verse number four, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making requests with joy. There's much you could learn from this, but at the very least, you learn that true joy surpasses circumstances. If you know anything about the, the background of this letter, and Paul saying, every time I pray for you, I make my requests with joy, you, you have to think about where Paul is at in his station in life at the moment. And if you know anything about the circumstances of Paul at this moment when he's authoring these words, then you know that joy is based on more than earthly circumstances. Paul at this present moment is in prison, accused of propagating a false religion, and is accused really of treason. Paul is talking about a kingdom that surpasses the kingdom of Rome that is one day coming. He's talking about King Jesus, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords over and above Emperor Nero at this point in time. And this, this was weighty to be accused of this. Paul is about to stand audience before Emperor Nero. And if you know any of history in Emperor Nero, you know that it's unsettling to stand before this man who does not like Christians and has killed a lot of them. Paul physically is not doing well. We know from his writings that his, his eyesight is failing, that he is oppressed in his spirit even. We know that Paul is he's in a, a jail cell. This is not a weakened at grandma's. This is not a stay at the Ritz-Carlton. Paul, humanly speaking, has some really bleak circumstances. They're grim and dim, but nevertheless, Paul is able to say, when I think about you, I'm thankful for you, and that causes me to make requests to, to God. And when I make those requests, I do that with joy in my heart. I do that with a spirit and attitude of joy because Paul understood that God was way bigger than his circumstances. Paul understood that his joy was not determined by where he was or how his health was or even if he lived or died. He understood that his joy was attached not to personal comfort, but it was attached in his mind to progress of the gospel. 
Paul is thankful for these people, and he's joyful for these people because of, for their fellowship in the gospel. And Paul is saying that there's joy in gospel ministry, that there is joy in Jesus that surpasses all of these circumstances. And he's going to press this out further in his letter because joy is, is a major keynote of the book of Philippians. But, but the joy that Paul experienced was not based on his circumstances. It was, it was attached and based on the gospel going forward. And the joy that Paul has is something that we're supposed to have. This is not just good for you, you're an apostle, kudos, buddy. I wish that I could get there, but I never can. Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, and he gives them these three brief verses. It's these uh, staccatos of imperatives that are kind of bunched together. And he says this, rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Joy, prayer, thanksgiving constitute one dimension of God's will for your life. And this is what Paul is saying in verses 3 and 4. I am thankful for you. I pray for you. I have joy in that. I have all three of these. And so too should you and I, so too should we to understand that, that joy is supposed to be normative for the Christian. That goes beyond the negativity that life can throw at you sometimes. And life does. I get that. But there can be a joy that goes beyond your hap and your happenstance that's rooted in Jesus Christ. I will note this incidentally. I don't have time this morning to, to really press it out, but I'll give you a thought to study on your own time before we get to verse number five. Paul is, is taking in these first four verses, he's taking the stereotypical way of beginning a letter in the first century and he is twisting it a bit and transforming it a bit, and he's gospel shaping it to be used for the edification of the body of Christ. It was very normal in the first century, if you, if you study the literary styles, for them to introduce themselves and to give some sort of, some sort of a health wish to people. Kind of the modern day or ancient equivalent of, I trust this letter finds you well. It was very normal to, to give those words, just kind of throw them out there loosely. And Paul takes that, that ancient custom and he twists and shapes it a little bit and he uses it to communicate grace and peace from God our Father and I have joy and thanksgiving for you and I make requests for you. And he, he uses it to edify the body of Christ, which is something that, that is as old as Christianity is taking cultural methodology and gospel shaping it to be used for the furtherance of the kingdom of God and for the edification of the body. We would, we would say in, in kind of our, our modern day and age that we would do things like uh, bus ministry. There, all, there hasn't always been, you know, locomotives and buses to transport people, but we, we would have a bus that went out this morning and, and picked people up and brought them to church. That's taking a cultural norm or method and applying it to use it for the gospel. We would use a Facebook Facebook is just a, a normal cultural thing that we would take and use and gospel shape it as a tool to communicate prayer requests or announcements or, or to put the church on the same page. And Paul is doing something that the church has done for centuries of taking kind of cultural norms that surface and blossom up and saying, I'm going to take it and twist it and use it to further the gospel of Christ. Study that further in your own time. I don't have time to dwell there. I want to get to verse number five. Verse number five, Paul says this, I'm I think about you, and I'm thankful for you, and I, I make requests to God for you, and I make those requests with joy in my heart, and I do that for, because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. 
the main takeaway I want us to, to really get from verse number five is this. The community and the cause that you so desperately desire is found in gospel ministry. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I'm grateful for your fellowship in the gospel. And, and fellowship is, is partnership. It's association. It's close relationship with. And this fellowship, Paul says, is in the gospel. It's in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's the, that's the gospel message, that Christ died for us, He was buried and rose again, and He did for us what we could not do for ourselves, and He offers us salvation. He offers us forgiveness of sins, peace with God, a home in heaven. That Paul says, you have partnered with me for the gospel, and you've done it from beginning to end, from the first day until now, without interruption, you have had a long obedience in the same direction, and I'm grateful for this. And this fellowship that Paul is saying, it's a very weighty word. He's saying that inevitably we have something that we hold near and dear to our hearts, that we hold in common with each other. You say, whoop de doo It's not difficult to find commonness with other people. It's easy to find a point of connection, you know? John the Baptist and Winnie the Pooh share a middle name in common. That's not difficult to, to get. Let that sink in, because that's a moment of, of sermon genius right there, okay? Just let that sink in for a moment. Paul is not saying we just have this loose connection to each other, and there's this, there's this one point of commonality that we can say, oh, yeah, we get along because we have this. What Paul is saying is, we have close partnership. We are glued together by the gospel. That I am glued to Jesus and you are glued to Jesus and we are glued to each other with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we looked just a few weeks ago at the inception of this church at Philippi and in Acts 16 you find this quartet of men that go and reach this trio of people in Philippi. And you find that Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy go reach Lydia a little slave girl, and a Philippian jailer. Now, put another way, you would, say, you would say it this way. A former Christian murderer, a pastor, a doctor, and a young man from an interracial and interreligious background go out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with a CEO businesswoman, a former fortune teller, and a calloused prison jailkeeper. It's the most eclectic bunch of people you could ever think to put together. And this unlikely band gets united and enters into fellowship and partnership for one reason and one reason only, for the gospel. Because each and every one of them, they're, they're so vast and so different, but each and every one of them understand what Jesus has done for them, the salvation that he's offered to them, and they say, you know what? Let's be a team and let's get together and let's partner for this. Let's be together for, for the gospel. So this, this fellowship is far more than Kool-Aid and cookies. This is not just church potluck and going to a ball game together and enjoying some, some conversation. This, this is a sharing. There's a deep understanding between Paul and this church that they share together in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for our sins according to the Scriptures. There, there, there's a deep understanding with this team of people that they have a common life. They've, they've all been born again of the Spirit. They have a common Lord, and His name is Jesus, and they have a common love. God loved them. They, live, they love God, and so they all love each other. And they share their life, their Lord, and their love all in common, and that 
bands them and unites them in partnership for the gospel. And we get, you get as a Christian, the privilege to be involved in gospel ministry and to be a part of something that really matters. To actually be a part of something with your time and your words and your money and your effort, a part of something that carries eternal weight and eternal significance. And Paul is touching on in this verse really some deep needs of the human heart. And whether you've realized it or not, whether you've ever formally expressed it or not, there are, there are certain very basic core desires that your heart, every human heart, longs for. You would, I would put it this way in, in verse number five, that you long for, your fundamental desires, at least two of them, are that you want a community and you want a cause. You want a group and a goal. You want intimacy with other people and some sort of initiative that spurs you to action. You, you, your heart, my heart, craves these ideas and you, you want a sense of connection. You want to belong. You want to be known and know other people. You want to have a crew, a tribe, a community, a group of people that you belong to. You want fellowship. You, you might even call this love. You want to feel like you're connected to other people. That's a, that's a really, really strong human desire. It, the desire is so strong that I would argue that it attributes to much of the heroism that we would applaud and laud even in our own country. Many of the purple hearts and silver stars and things that, that men and women have earned in acts of heroism and bravery have really the underlying root there has been they were part of a band of brothers, uh, band of brothers and band of sisters in maybe a military unit that were willing to give and sacrifice of themselves for the greater good. That there was this closeness and connection and community that spurred someone to positive action. Now, the flip side of that is true as well. Much of the stupidity that you exhibited in when you were 15 and 16 and 17 could be attributed to the same real root issue. If you're honest, you did a lot of really stupid stuff when you were a teenager because the group was doing some really stupid stuff, right? Some of you did some really dumb things, and you knew that it was dumb before you did the dumb thing, but everyone else was doing the dumb thing, so you wanted to be part of the group, so you did it anyway. You jumped off the bridge, although you're scared of heights and you cannot swim. You, you, you know, surfed on the hood of the car while it was going 30 miles an hour, whatever crazy thing that you did or did not do. You did it probably, why? Because you wanted, you wanted to fit in, right? We would call this peer pressure. You wanted to belong. You, di you didn't want to be on the outskirts of that community. You wanted to be it with the in crowd. And there's an equally strong desire inside of us to have purpose, to have a sense of meaning, to feel that my life is counting for something, attributing to something, that I'm making an, an impact in my world. My wife and I will sometimes watch 
uh, a show on ABC where inventors pitch their, their inventions to these investors called Shark Tank. I don't know if you've ever seen it or not. I can't say that every part of Shark Tank is good, but it's a pretty mild TV show. And, and more often than not, someone will make their pitch and they'll end it with something like, and my business is going to impact the world and, and we're going to make a difference in the world and we're going to, over and over and over again, people will express that what I'm doing, I'm trying to scratch the itch of finding fulfillment and purpose and meaning inside of my life. Some of you maybe came to church for the first time because you were searching for that. But somehow you felt like, I, I don't belong and I don't have connection and community or people that, that I really feel a part of, or maybe I, I, I feel like there's, there's this missing element in my life and I'm trying to find purpose here or there. And some of you came to faith in Jesus because you were, you were inevitably searching for that. Some of you went to college to find this and you found that it, it wasn't there. You switched majors like 18 times and every one just failed to scratch the itch and give you meaning and purpose and satisfaction. Some of you went to your first job and you thought that it would be there. A couple years into it, you found out that it wasn't there. Then you went to the next job and the next job and the next job. Some of you got married maybe because this was an underlying motive or you had kids because you were searching for, for purpose and, and meaning in life. I recently watched a, a TED Talk. I don't know if you're familiar with TED Talks, but uh, they're, they're interesting sometimes. And this journalist, um, Sebastian Younger, who what has been embedded with our American troops over the years and, and journals and chronologues, what, what they do, gave this talk and, and he entitled it, Why Do Veterans Want War? And this isn't true for every veteran, but he said, I've, I've spent so much time with, with these men and these women who come home from war and if they're honest, deep down inside, they want to go back. And they, they crave what war gave them. And he said, I know them. They're not, they're not psychopaths. They don't even think war is good. They, they, don't, they don't like to kill and murder people. That's not, that's not who they are. But there's something inside of them that tugs them back to and makes them want to go back to war. And the hypothesis that Sebastian Younger presents is that these men and women want to do that because when they are in war, they have a clear cause and they have a clear community. They know what the goal and the mission is, and they know that when they are in the, on the battlefield, when they are in those moments, that they are part of a group that will sacrifice for each other and will give of their lives even if they need to for each other. And those men and women, they yearn for that. They want that back. They come back to the states, and they don't find the same community. They don't find the same cause. And in turn, they, they, want, they want to go back to war. And our culture, and we're getting somewhere biblically with this, so hang with me. Our culture just slaps platitudes on this. And just and our culture understands that these desires are here. And our culture just puts a platitude on it and says, well, just, just find a group. Just find a cause. Just, you know, pick one. And pursue it and give it your all. Chase your dreams, you know. But we'd have to admit that not every community is the same. Like there is a legit difference between being a part of a community of murderers and a community of doctors. Like there, there's, an, there's an actual difference between the two. There's a difference in, in our causes. I read a, a year or two ago about this uh, scientist. He's an entomologist. He studies insects. His name is Justin Schmidt. And Justin Schmidt is known as the king of sting because he made it his mission and goal and purpose in life to find as many bees 
wasps and ants as humanly possible and to allow them to sting and bite him so that he could create a scale of how painful the insect bite and stings are. And he has created said scale. It's a one to four scale. He has different kind of factors. Some pains are, are you know, sharp and burning. Some are, are dull. Some are really long lasting. Some are short. But like thousands of times he allowed himself to be stung and bit so that he could create a scale of how painful insect bites are. Now, we would have to admit there's a difference between that and wanting to cure cancer or solve world hunger. Like there is, there's a legitimate difference between those causes, right? So we, we, I think, not just Christians, but people as a whole, understand that there are these, these desires inside of us that push us and propel us, and those desires actually can be measured. There's ways to satisfy those desires that are better than others. And I believe part of what Paul is saying here and part of why this letter is so beautiful and he loves this, this church at Philippi so much is because this church has found the community and the cause that isn't just somewhat better than others, but they have found the best. They have found the community and the cause that their heart actually longs and aches for because this community and this cause is attached to the one who put, who put those desires there to begin with. Who placed inside of us this want, this drive to feel connected and to have a purpose in life. And Paul says, I am grateful for you and I have joy and I pray for you because you have had fellowship, partnership, community with me in a singular cause, the gospel that you have actually found what is best. You found the answer to satisfy these urges, not just a answer, but you've literally found the answer. You have found how God has designed you and created you and shaped you to want to belong to a group and to want to have something that moves you together. They found the answer. They have found what Paul wrote in Corinthians to be true, that they can be laborers together with God. That their effort and their movement in the gospel and partnership in the gospel was something that from day one they started and they were not removed from that. They had a long obedience in the same direction. Their, their entire, the entire span of this church's life, about a decade at this point, that they had just stayed right there because it satisfied them. It's brought them joy. It's brought them a, a sense of purpose and meaning and connection. And Paul says to this church, I think about you and I'm thankful for you. I, I pray for you and I do that with joy that surpasses my circumstances just because of you and because you have partnered with me in gospel ministry. And so church, this is beginning to end and this, I believe, is why this letter is so warm and so heartfelt and so shaped by joy because Paul understood and they understood what it meant to be together in gospel ministry. I'll close with, with a, a bit of an article that I read here this week, and this article was written by Matthew Paris, who's a, he's a British atheist who grew up in Africa, specifically Malawi, and after 45 years, he went back to Malawi. And he came back, and he wrote an article and actually posted it on another atheist website in, in England, and it was a surprising article. He entitled it, As an Atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. And this is, what, this is what Matthew Paris said. 
Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. It's sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real and the change is good. This man says, I don't want to be a Christian, but I can't help to go to some of, the, some of these places around the world and go to where I grew up, and I can't help but notice that there's hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's changing people. And that's doing something to them. And, it, and it's, it's more than philanthropy. It's more than humanitarian aid. It's more than just trying to give them a leg up and train them and educate them a bit. It is actually from the inside out changing and shaping these people. And I have to, although I don't even agree, I can't get there mentally, I have to step back and say, they need more of that. And, and if an atheist man can observe that just by watching several communities of people in the country that he grew up in, I dare say that the church of Jesus Christ should be able to see the power and potency and efficacy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That what Paul said, you fellowshiped and partnered with me from beginning to end, you've had a long obedience in the same direction, is what our church needs to take note of. That you, we, we, you, I cannot be consumed with ancillary items. We have to be locked, bulldog grip on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That this is what matters. Sharing our faith, giving the good news of Jesus, trying to even use Easter as a tool. That's what matters. That's what's important. And Paul says to this church, I think about you and I'm thankful for you. I pray for you and I do it with joy. And all of that is because you have fellowship, partnered with me in the gospel. We, we have a community. We're together in this. We have a cause. And we're satisfied with it. We, are, we, don't, need to, we don't need to chase random rabbit trails. We can, we can be stuck right here. I'll, I'll end with two thoughts. Number one, what if, what if you say to me, I'm a Christian. I experience the deep satisfaction that comes from the gospel, but I've found that that cause and that sense of purpose has waned. I don't have time to answer the question this morning, but I will tonight at six o'clock as we look at Colossians. So I'm not trying to, you know, leave you on a cliffhanger, but legitimately we'll try to answer it tonight. I'll answer this. Secondly and lastly, what if, what if you say, I don't know that I'm part of the Jesus community? I don't know that I could say I'm a partner in the gospel. I don't even know that I truly get the good news, the gospel. Can I tell you, it is so simple, and I would love for you to join the band in the community today. Jesus Christ came and died, not just because, but died for our sins and was buried and rose again. And all those who believe on him and put their faith in him, the Bible says that he gives eternal life to, that he gives, he makes them part of the family. If you will believe that Jesus did for you what you could not do for yourself, that he forgives you, that he saves you, and simply put your faith in him. And if you have never done that, I would love, absolutely love, for you to do that today. I can remember when that happened to me. It was in a church service similar to this. That I had never done that, but I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior and found a satisfaction and a joy and a purpose that 
that was not existent before that. 